Welcome to the Global Inquirer. I'm your host, Nicholas Mortensen. We're an undergraduate research podcast that looks at case studies to see how global trends are affecting real lives. Today, we're sitting down with Katya Senko and Walter Sharon to discuss our current relations with Russia after sanctions were put in place in response to the Skripal poisonings in Salisbury, and then exploring the history of Western sanctions against Russia and what it tells us about our one-dimensional view of economic sanctions and the significance of the media. So Katya, can you talk to us about the Skripal poisoning first? So in March of 2018, former Russian agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were found as victims of a nerve attack in Salisbury, England. Uh, as a direct result, the U.S. expelled 60 diplomats and closed the consulate in Seattle. Five months later, in August, there were talks of sanctions, and the U.S. rolled out sanctions against Russia that were actually far less harsh than the Senate had actually wanted. These measures mostly hit parts of Russia's aviation and oil and gas sectors. The ruble is actually really closely linked to the oil and gas in Russia, so you can see that as the sanctions target these sectors, Russia's economy continues to weaken, and the dollar is very strong in Russia right now. Is this the first time that Russia's been punished for kind of a high-profile uh, dispute or high-profile act of foul play internationally? No, but this is probably the second major wave of sanctions since 2014 during the annexation of Crimea. At the time in 2014, Obama ordered a huge wave of sanctions against Russia that severely impacted their economy. And it's, it's hard to decide whether they are effective or ineffective, but they definitely impacted their economy and had an impact on a global scale. And at this point, almost 700 people and companies are under U.S. sanctions in Russia. Last season, the Global Enquirer did an episode on the World Cup in Russia, and there was a lot of talk about potential foul play, uh, mistreating workers, as well as other uncertainties and suspicious acts kind of surrounding Russia's organization, the World Cup. And I didn't really see any sanctions or any uh, Western outrage as a result to that. So were our concerns overblown? Were there any issues at the World Cup? Do we know anything since then? Right. So as we as we mentioned in the episode in the spring, um, when it comes to a World Cup, a lot of things really can happen that aren't recognized internationally. Um, so the world will be watching in terms of the matches and the entertainment, but uh, the things that go on behind the scenes really become ignored. So in a sense, we recognize that this would happen, that things might happen and people wouldn't really care about human rights abuses. So if you look back and think, why didn't I hear about that? One reason could be because the World Cup is the type of competition that inflates interest in terms of international foreign aid. Walter, you talked about there not being as much attention directed towards the issues with the Russian World Cup. Is there a case in particular that we missed? Is there something that we didn't talk about or the media hasn't really seen or talked about? Yeah, so there actually is a case that only two main sources have talked about, one being the Human Rights Watch and the other being Yosemar, which is a, an independent journal out of Norway that talks about uh, human rights issues, which I imagine is not something that you read on a daily basis. So they're very niche reporting, but that doesn't mean that they aren't factual. So specifically speaking, Osamar reported that at least 110 North Koreans uh, worked at the Zenit Arena construction in St. Petersburg, which was one of the venues for the uh, the World Cup finals. International experts have described the workers from North Korea as being both slaves and hostages, and one North Korean worker was found dead in a storage container outside of the stadium. So clearly this is an issue that is not to be overlooked. And yet when you type these things into a search engine and look for major news sites, the most that you will find is an opinion piece. So we have these fairly gratuitous human rights abuses. You know, you're bringing in unauthorized North Korean labor that 
as defined by the studies and by the United Nations, qualifies as hard labor, if not slave labor. And you have at least 20 workers who died during the construction of these stadiums. Why is it that we hadn't heard about this and why weren't sanctions put in place for this? I mean, these are about as gratuitous as human right abuses get. Right. So that demands a really interesting question based on how the media plays a role in terms of sanctions. Um, This is something that I didn't know a lot about, but we found an interesting paper that was written back in 2014 by um, a professor from the University of Missouri. We have these incredibly gratuitous abuses of human rights within Russia. So why were sanctions not put in place for this? Why aren't they getting attention that the Skripal poisoning got, that the annexation of Crimea got? Why do we have these horrible instances of foul play that go punished while other ones that are granted not as severe as the annexation of the sovereign territory of another country, but are still pretty horrible? Right. And that's a really important question to ask. And that's one that I hadn't heard a lot of information about in it really made me curious about how media really influences economic sanctions. So I did a little digging, and it turns out that uh, Professor Cooper Drury from Politics Department at the University of Missouri actually was a co-author of a paper in 2014 entitled Media-Driven Humanitarianism, News Media Coverage of Human Rights Abuses and the Use of Economic Sanctions. It built upon uh, previous research on the CNN effect, which talks specifically more about humanitarianism. So Professor uh, Drury actually explained the CNN effect um, before uh, he talked about the paper itself. What it is is that the question of how much uh, impact the media has on uh, U.S. foreign policy. There's been quite a bit of uh, research that uh, shows uh, that it's not that, that the media is not just a conduit. Um, of information, but can actually uh, set the agenda, um, uh, prime public opinion, and do all of these sorts of, uh, have these impacts. And specifically with government, it can um, uh, sway the direction uh, of decisions. So uh, it can make, for example, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, you know, I, I would argue what should be the most a political of all aid, which is this humanitarian aid given to a country that has suffered a natural uh, disaster, um, uh, it's still politicized by whether or not there's coverage. But in terms of the actual paper itself, the findings were rather interesting. They found, based on empirical data, that there is a link between how much a story is covered in uh, a news site and whether or not there will be Um, intervention in terms of sanctions from the federal government. Is it just, if I see this on the first page of the Huffington Post or on Fox News, will this become the top agenda item for the United States government? Or are certain outlets more important for the selection than others? Based off the interview, you have certain outlets that the American foreign policy elite are more likely to read, more likely to be exposed to. Would it be a fair characterization to say that the media kind of acts as gatekeepers, sort of, when American foreign policymakers are looking at instances of human rights abuse or looking where sanctions could feasibly be used, that a lot of that first round of nations that we could feasibly sanction, that comes from the media, does it not? It does, and I think that's a fair fair way to put it. You can almost think of uh, media coverage as being a briefing for politicians in the sense that they provide the information but they also provide the information to the the public in the sense that the public is informed, so that creates more pressure on the government to actually do something about it. Um, So that kind of brings up an implication that does media coverage itself just influence sanctions, or are there kind of conditions to this? 
And the professor talked about how there actually are specific conditions in which the media can have an influence. Uh, I, I don't remember the whole sort of process of uncovering it, but, um, you know, we, we initiate initially we start with alliances in there uh, as a control variable because we figured, you know, you typically you don't sanction your allies because they're your allies, even if they are abusing their people. Um, and and the results were getting kind of squirrely. And so we then dug deeper into it and started building the uh, uh, these conditional models uh, with the alliances. And what really came out, I think, is, is an interesting story, which is that um, uh, in countries that are U.S. allies, uh, and, you know, I, we can pick examples here that this would not be the case, but generally speaking, uh, we have greater access, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where they're allies. So there's going to be more U.S. businesses there. And that also means there's going to be more media attention uh, or uh, access to reporters and so on. Uh, so the coverage is going to be higher um, in those countries. If they're abusing, you know, violating human rights, well, then uh, we're going to have more uh, coverage. But in, as I said, conversely, these allies uh, can get the negative coverage. The media are um, uh, independent of the government, so they can say all the bad things, but then it turns it over to the government. Uh, and we're far more likely to uh, ignore uh, problems within our allies' uh, countries uh, because of strategic interests. You know, it's, it's actually interesting if you, um, and I haven't looked at these data uh, in the post-Cold War uh, period, but at one point I was uh, looking at it, the human rights uh, and uh, measures of democracy um, were lower for U.S. allies than for uh, non-allies during the Cold War. So in other words, we were more likely to, the, the our average ally in the Cold War was non-democratic and abused human rights. Oh, wow. um, you know, and again, makes sense. It's the yeah. Cold War, you know, sure. going on. Um, but but when you bring that into the story, at least in my mind, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Reporters can run around uh, in, you know, a, a place that, uh, we have good relations with and a for- and actually have a formal alliance. Um, but it also means that we're going to ignore what the reporters say, uh, more often than not. So we see that the media plays a very big role in bringing sanctions to the government's attention, but couldn't you just sort of take that and say that the media is the primary influencer in whether or not sanctions are put in place? Right. So it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, As the paper itself finds, it really depends on a few things at hand. Namely, the effect for critical coverage is stronger for non-allies than allies. Uh, The effect is conditioned by U.S. strategic targets, um, which really implies that although the media can really influence economic sanctions, to what extent do they influence them? And it really suggests that sanctions are more complicated than we might think. Katya, can you talk to us about the history of sanctions with Russia and their effects? Are, have these been effective? And what have they usually been targeting? Do they even work? So I think that the Skripal case is just one example. I mean, if you remember in March, it was on every single TV channel. It was on every news network. But there, again, there are 700 U.S. sanctions on companies and individuals in Russia right now. And there's no way that the media had affected all 700. A lot of them are more obscure, like oligarchs or... Um, people who are big in oil and gas, and they have individual sanctions on them. The main nature of sanctions in Russia, they don't affect daily life, really. They're more like embargoes on weapons and 
and freezing individual bank transfers and stuff like that. It doesn't affect people on a grand scale. I mean, it does, on the other hand, affect the economy greatly. Whenever you target the oil and gas the gas sectors in Russia, there will be an economic consequence. So it's clear that in many, many of the cases uh, where Russian businesses or individuals were sanctioned, this wasn't because of the media. Are these widely publicized sanctions on Russia from the United States and the rest of the Western world, are they more symbolic in nature or do they actually have a strong policy or economic driver to them? Do they actually bring about the changes and changes behavior that we want to see from Russia and any other country that we sanction? Yeah, I think the the honest answer is that it's really complicated. As the professor said in the interview, um, there are a lot of conditions that depend on you know who is hit hardest and what sectors are hit the worst. But ultimately, he did suggest that you shouldn't underestimate the power of sanctions and that they actually can do some damage, although the direction that they're sent can be more complicated. I tend to think, you know, again, it's very much conditioned by the wealth of the country mm-hmm. uh, or its dependency upon the U.S. Um, uh, I, I just published a piece uh, comparing, uh, uh, this is in Africa, um, comparing U.S. and European pressures on several of the countries there um, uh, over uh, LGBT uh, sexual minority rights. And, uh, you know, what you find is, is that the countries that were heavily dependent upon the U.S. and Europe for aid, uh, even though they didn't, you know, the politicians and the public didn't seem to be too keen on making policy changes to uh, provide protections for sexual minorities, uh, they did anyway. The countries that weren't dependent on the U.S. actually did the opposite. Um, uh, they, you know, and this is. I think in some ways one of the the, unpl- the unfortunate things about sanctions is that you can try to have a desired effect, but sometimes you not only don't have the effect, but you make things worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Uganda's case, uh, they're not dependent upon the U.S. Uh, for aid, not nearly as much as the others. And they began enforcing some of these laws that were on the books um, that honestly hadn't, I think, had not been enforced regularly before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so much of it depends on that. Uh, now if you, you then sort of, you know, maybe step up another couple thousand feet and ask more generally speaking, um, what are they? I think they are far more symbolic than they are, um, actually coercive. So they send a signal to the target country that, uh, the sender, the sanctioning country is, uh, is not happy and wants to change. Um, it's one step potentially in an escalation, right? So, uh, you know, if you look at the, the first Iraq war, uh, the U S, uh, uh, George H W Bush couldn't just march in with troops. Uh, you know, I, I think he would have had a far more difficult time building a coalition. Uh, but instead he sanctions first, everybody gets on board. Then, you know, you step up the violence. So, so it works in that sense. It begins sending those signals, even if you're not going to get to the level of actual uh, violence. It, it's still sending the signal of this is more than, um, you know, we're going to publicly uh, demand or uh, chastise you for doing something. We're actually going to you know, cause pain, uh, economic pain. 
Um, and the other thing about them that, that's really interesting, and Tim Peterson has done some work on this, uh, is, is that they can have um, what you could call a, a tertiary effect so uh, or a third-party effect. So, you know, uh, A sanctions B, um, has no effect with B, but country C uh, sees what happens and begins to reform its policy oh, wow. uh, because, you know, they don't want to be um, – no, they don't want to be sanctioned. Sure. And, and Tim does some very interesting work of looking at how does how does, you know, the third party country look at other countries. So in other words, it's not just necessarily your physical neighbor, but uh, if you're, you know, an autocrat abusing human rights and you see another autocrat abusing human rights, even though he's on the other side of the world, you might want to, like, take note of that. Whenever we talk about sanctions, the perception is, oh, sanctions don't work. Oh, they're useless. Oh, they're worthless. Or, oh, you know, these sanctions are all we really need. You know, these are ruining their economy. It's just a matter of time before they do what we want them to do. It's a lot more complicated than that. It depends on the relations with the country. It depends on their economy. It depends on the social and government makeup of that country we're placing sanctions on. And it just really seems like it's not a silver bullet. It's not It's a, not a foam bullet either. It's neither, you know, a powerful thing or a useless thing. It's just one facet of a much broader policy, and our one-dimensional view of it just isn't that helpful, is it? If the main goal of sanctions is to change a behavior in a country and to push a country into a corner and, and to help change behaviors, it makes sense in the context of Crimea. It would make sense in putting sanctions in response to the human rights violations. But when only two people are affected, it's difficult to understand the intent of those sanctions. This just highlights the complexities of the reasons behind sanctions. And I think as Professor Drury highlights, it's just, it shows that we're at the pinnacle of tension between the United States and Russia. And it shows the complexities of all these factors that just add up to putting them as, you know, responding in this way. So there are a lot of moving parts here and more that people give credit for. The media is very, very important in bringing public and government attention to various issues as well as pressuring action. But while the media is very important in bringing attention to these problems, once it's in government hands, it can take a very different form or function from what people would initially expect. It is a part of a broader policy, you would hope. It's part of a broader policy initiative. It's part of a broader effort in trying to work against or with other nations. And just sanctions isn't going to be enough, as well as any other policy in the world isn't going to be enough. It needs to be one part of a much more coherent comprehensive policy initiative. And as we see here, the usual idea in the media and popular discussions is, oh, sanctions are going to work or, oh, sanctions is worthless, is very just not helpful to the discussion at large. So as you're talking about a broader trend and a broader policy, um, it seems like sanctions does play into this general trend of closing channels, both economic and political, between the United States and Russia. I think it's important to not overlook what the spark for all of these sanctions and issues can be, and the fact that media coverage is actually influential. I think we live in a in a time where media coverage isn't as valuable as it has been in generations past, so it's really dangerous to kind of overlook the simple power of a story of something that you didn't really know about before. I th it, it's a fascinating effect because I don't think it's something that any one person controls, right? There's no head of the media. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it really is this, uh, non-state actor. Um, and of course, you know, there's, uh, you know, uh, free media outside the U S as well. Uh, so 
it it does have an impact, and I think it, it it's all the more reason that we should pay attention to what's being done, pay attention to the media, and and how it operates. And that's all we have for this week. And thank you for listening to Global Inquirer. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and SoundCloud and join us next week when I sit down with Emmy and Anna to discuss big game hunting in Zimbabwe and its broader significance for the region and the world. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Global Inquirer.